Hi, friends. Join us as we dive into the themes, metaphors, and foreshadowing of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. We are your hosts, Leah, Sarah, Tabby, and whether you're a new viewer or a longtime fan, welcome to Becoming Buffy. guys welcome back to becoming buffy today we're talking about season four episode 11 doomed okay so you guys watched the episode initial thoughts like an overall generalization of your feelings on this episode and go other than um hush this is my favorite episode of season four. yes i don't believe you try again (laughs) wrong answer this is actually my favorite episode of the show ever I think that they should have had this at the end of the series and ended it there. <laughs> oh, my word. Leah, you ruined my joke. Um, <laughs> y'all were supposed to believe me, man. I really thought I played that like very tongue-in-cheek. All right, fine. Someone out there believed you. They'll email us and be like, wow, I just really thought. <laughs> okay, here's the thing. It wasn't as bad as I remembered it being. Like There were some good parts to it. Um, okay, though, I have a genuine question. Is it just me? I swear I would bet everything in my bank account right now that Giles had to dub every single one of his lines over this whole episode. Did you guys <laughs> um, see that? Yeah, no, there was it at least two scenes. It didn't fit the tone of it. Yeah. Or the, not no, the tune. The, um, the tone. tone of it. No, yeah. They had some sound editing problems, not just with Giles, but with other voices and stuff too. There was some something that was funky behind the scenes here. Yeah. I never noticed it until this rewatch. And I was like, because I know the way, like the timbre of his voice or whatever. And you could tell that he was like going back over and it wasn't, he wasn't hitting the um, mood that his body language was giving in that scene. And I was yeah. like, this is weird. This doesn't quite yeah. fit. It's not just one scene too. There's two It's scenes. like cartoon yeah. acting. Mm-hmm. Yep. It, well, it sounded like Anthony Stewart Head was reading his lines. It didn't sound like he was actually emoting. Exactly. It was very weird. He didn't weird. mumble as much. It was a lot more like performative. It was so weird. Yeah. No, this episode is funny because I always remember the bit about Spike wearing the Hawaiian shirt and Buffy jumping into the Hellmouth. But those are the only two things that I really remember. Other than that, I always forget about this episode. It comes up and I'm like, oh, yeah, this one. For some reason, the Hawaiian shirt always m- makes me think of the episode in How I Met Your Mother when Robin wears the um, like bikini shirt. Oh, yeah. For, for Marshall and Lily's for, wedding. Yeah, for their wedding or something. I don't know why it makes me think of that. I think it's just like the tacky, like touristy apparel, and it yeah. always makes me laugh. Yeah, with the cutoffs. It's like a, he's like, you want to – and she's like, it's the shirt, isn't it? <laughs> he's like, No. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's like, can you? And she's like, yeah, yeah, leave it on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. No, this this episode is, is very odd. And here's the thing. I want to give it grace because it came after an amazing three-episode run. Pangs, Hush, Something Blue. I mean, well, reverse that order, but you know what I mean. Pangs, Something Blue, and Hush. Any episode that comes after those three is probably not going to be as amazing. Um, but this episode, even if those episodes weren't before it, it just would not be that great. It's it's not. There's always got to be one that kills the vibe. Yeah, <laughs> this one, this one killed it, sucked the life right out of it. So, okay, so there is a reason for that. So this episode was written by not one, not two, but three writers: Marty Noxon, David Fury, and Jane Espenson. 
Um, and I feel like you can tell because the tonal shifts between some of the scenes are really jarring because you'll be like, oh, we're going to talk about relationship stuff. Okay, now we're going to the B plot. Now we're going to go talk about like the apocalypse. And some of it doesn't quite jive well and there isn't like a very good crossover between them. And you can tell, like Passion the Nerd talks about this as well, you can tell there were three specific writers that we all know their style of writing very well. And you can pick out which scenes they were probably assigned to write. Marty Noxon wrote the very, um, we'll talk about it, um, somewhat problematic Riley and Buffy scenes. There oh, is- Oh my word, yes. That's what I was thinking when I, I was like, yes. there's no way Marty did not write these scenes. Oh, yeah, that was Marty. Yep. Which is weird because she's written some amazing Buffy and Angel scenes, but yeah, I just think the writers don't know how to it, write it's Riley. It's the tug but- and pull of what either of them or what both of them were kind of like digging their heels into that I was like, this is the type of stuff that she loves to like bring yeah. conflict in relationships. Yes. She's low-key a little toxic in how she writes. I'm like, I don't think she knows how to write healthy relationships, but yeah. Yeah. And then I'm pretty sure David Fury was the one that did the apocalypse plot line. And then Jane Espenson, her fingerprint is all over Spike and Xander together because it was laugh out loud funny. It was very, very funny. I think that's the best part of the episodes. I agree. Of the episode <laughs> is only because it's just like, it's a dynamic we really didn't expect. And it's just funny. Like, it's just entertaining. Yeah, they're both kind of floundering. Like they kind of stuck with Xander with Giles for a while, but now that they need Giles to be a little more serious than they have Xander with Spike because they're both kind of floundering. It's it's very funny. So this episode was directed by James A. Contner and it aired January 18th, 2000. I was about ready to say 19. Nope, we're in the 2000s now. This is the first episode of the 2000s. I kind of feel a little sad. We left the 90s behind us, guys. Yeah. And so go most of the good fits. <laughs> that is kind of true. Early 2000s was not a happy time for styles. I think that there were some really cool looks in the early 2000s, but I would say 2000s in shows specifically, the style was not it because shows like a lot of it is like what's really popular at the time. And the problem is, is that a lot of the really popular stuff in the 2000s was not good. Like the low rise jeans, the like... I don't know. I can't think of anything else. Time, I don't think it's like, the low-rise jeans because I think they can look good. It's the the way that they styled things together. Like you had the the yeah. pants that were somehow – they didn't go all the way to the floor. Like they kind of cut off and made people look a little funky. And then you yeah. had some of the shirts that were just either too long or really short. And then um, the styles were just ill-fitting. 2000s was very grunge, very frumpy, and everybody just wore things that were either super big or loose fitting, or it was, it's very different from how we wear things today. Here's the thing um, 2000 to 2003, not bad for the most part. Then you hit 2004 to 2010. 2007 God, was a rough year, man. freaking <laughs> awful, dude. No, like I felt when people talk about 2000s fashion, they're literally only talking about 2000 to 2003. Everything past that, maybe 2004, maybe. You hit the middle to upper and even 2010, 2011, so ugly, you guys. Like, it's actually yep. so ugly. The like, layered look was super in. The Disney and- Channel look, bro. Yeah. <laughs> it's all, yep. like, contrasting colors. Like, I just can't. Um, I, I If I had to describe the 2000s 
like fashion with anything, any phrase, it would just be fast fashion. That's why television mm. doesn't work well is because it's like even with like this is why the 90s has aged well because a lot of times it's just staple pieces with little like mini like t-shirts that people wore with like high-waisted pants and then um, you had like little mini skirts and there were some things here and there that like maybe we don't wear now but you look back and you're like this is pretty standard like it's pretty standard stuff like maybe like formal wear people don't really wear as much now because it's a lot more like shoulder paddy and um that sort of thing but the 2000s it's like it was all just trendy for the moment for the most part especially in television and it's like if you're not in that exact trend flip flipperoo right now like right now we're going through some like 2000s like trends that are coming back and if they're not like Ugh. in that exact moment as you're rewatching, like they're just not cute like platform sandals i think are cute but in two years we're gonna look back and be like that's embarrassing and then we're, we're watching it and from the 2000s feeling the same way so it's just it's a lot of hit or miss and i think buffy has some cute fits in the fourth season and some in the fifth season but for me, they it starts losing me a little bit when it's like the sixth and seventh season. Yeah, um, there is a reason why they had three writers for this episode. So Douglas Petrie says, "I think in terms of the lineup, I probably would have written that one doomed myself. Except I was getting married that week, and as much as I love Buffy, I was glad I took that couple of days off. It was tough, and it was funny because Jane." Marty and Joss were all there for my wedding. Jane at one point was on the dance floor and said, okay, I've got to go back. We were writing it over a weekend. So they wrote this entire script over a weekend in between uh, Douglas Petrie's wedding. So you can tell it was rushed. He continues and says, doomed was very difficult. I was around for the breaking of the story and I'm happy about that. It was difficult and it was hard. I think that we were really up against the wall. We didn't know what we were going to do and we didn't have much time. Things either go really, really well when that happens. You are blessed with some kind of inspiration. Things click and they move fast because you don't have time. Wonderful things happen. Or you work really hard and you do your best in hope. I think that was the case with doomed. It was a lot of hard work. Buffy and Riley are the king and queen of their respective worlds and have their own methods of dealing with the enemy. So right off the bat, I think you can just kind of tell that the writers weren't really sure where they were going to go with Buffy and Riley's relationship. Um, and then Passion the Nerd had a really good point. He pointed out that this episode coming after Hush, most likely a lot of production time and effort and value went into that episode, leaving not as much time for this one. Um, I don't know if that's the case. Either way, this episode unfortunately suffered from just a bunch of things happening all at once. So then we talked about it before, the obvious scenes with Giles that are dubbed over. Um, there's also a couple other scenes in, like at the very end, the apocalypse where Buffy's voice doesn't sound mixed very well. Like when they cut back and forth between like when they would do a voiceover versus when you're actually seeing the character talk on screen. Sometimes like the sound doesn't line up all the way. Um, the plot kind of feels thrown together and it's technically an apocalypse and everyone's feeling these massive feelings but it's rushed. Like we go back to the high school and I think that's a really big deal, but it's unfortunate because like it ends up being downplayed because of the way that the tone of the episode is. And I think that's a real bummer because I think that can kind of make like cheapen future apocalypses possibly. Um, like Buffy's always treated the apocalypse apocalypses. How do you say it? How do I say it in like um Apocalypse. Apocalypse. <laughs> 
apocalypse apocalypses mm-hmm. is that what it is i don't remember i don't know i just said it <laughs> whatever is the like plural it. for apocalypse but i mean other than the zeppo but that one worked really well they're treated as a really big deal and I appreciate that because I think some shows like you just get tired of yeah, having. I didn't think this one week. did though. Like it was literally. It's apocalypses. I, I just looked it up. I saw the timestamp and it was the last ten minutes. It was at the. It was like literally ten minutes before the episode ended, and then we were finally at the school. And I was like, guys, you can't squeeze an apocalypse in the last ten minutes. <laughs> that is literally kind of like the tagline for this episode. You can't squeeze an apocalypse I in 10 like minutes. I felt like nothing happened in this episode and then all of a sudden an apocalypse. And I was like, guys, what is going on with this episode? Literally nothing. It was like nothing was happening. And then it was like, okay, pop, apocalypse. And you're like, guys, hello? Yeah. But I think that's kind of what it was though is that the writers were like – they had stuff that they need to get in the episode, like the Buffy and Riley stuff. Mm-hmm. And then they like probably got through half the episode and they're like, oh, there isn't really much in here that's interesting. <laughs> they're like, let's throw an apocalypse in. Like just something to keep a lot of the fans satisfied while still moving the plot along. And they, I think I really just think it was an episode that they just kind of had to get out and put some stuff in, but they didn't really think about the episode as a whole. Yeah. Yeah, it was it felt like I think that's a perfect way to describe it, Leah. It felt like multiple pieces of a puzzle that they had to somehow squish together that they needed to have those plot points in for the rest of the season and they're like, "Well, just kind of build something around it." Um, I do think the rushed feel is part of the story. I think they're trying to emphasize the fact that the apocalypse or apocalypses are just a part of life and life has to move on. Basically what Riley tries to tell Buffy, you can't just be frozen in fear, which has been a message since the very beginning of the show. Change is painful, but not changing is far scarier. And we've talked about how like vampires are kind of a a metaphor for that. They don't change. They don't age. Um, They're a symbol of not changing. Whereas this show is the antithesis of that by our heroine being an adolescent. Um, and on the cusp of change. And then, you know, Parker talks about seizing the moment. Joyce talks about not letting fear control you. And in Something Blue, Buffy realizes that just because something is unfamiliar doesn't mean that it's bad. Um, The problem is in doing all of this, the show kind of minimizes Buffy's very real pain and trauma. And they unfortunately... And I know we're going to get about this, so like, don't go into this yet. But they unfortunately chose Riley as the thematic voice for this, and it mm. does not come off well. And we will come back to that yeah. for sure. I'm holding all my opinions, but yes. Yes, yes. We have things to say. Um, and then lastly, this episode is all about everybody struggling with their identities after college and wondering if they've even changed from high school. Willow's called a nerd. Xander's still living in his parents' basement and is mocked by Spike for not going to college. Spike can't bite or hunt. And Buffy is wrestling through PTSD from literally dying and her past doomed relationships. So it's fitting that they do go back to the school. Um, I think the apocalypse fits in well with the episode. I just don't think it's handled well. So anyway. With all that said and done, let's actually talk about some scenes because I have so much to say. All right. So this episode immediately picks up right off where we left off from Hush. Buffy and Riley are sitting exactly as we left them. We hear like dogs barking in the background, like just to kind of emphasize how awkward this moment is. Buffy's like, well, one of us should speak. And Riley says, what are you? Not who are you? Okay. 
So I'm just going to come right out <laughs> Man, and say- Man, you couldn't even say that question right. Sarah's like, oh, so you didn't say No, but I, I do think that's an it's an important distinction because I think that Riley is a soldier. He sees things as black and white, very mm-hmm. much like how a lot of the characters in the first season used to see things. And so I think mm-hmm. in his mind, it's either you are human, you're on my side, or you're on the other side. And so I think to him- when he sees Buffy with obviously like superhuman strength and things like that, in his mind, he's going, you are now an enemy. It's not, you know, oh, you're, you know, there's gray. It's like good and bad. That is how he sees it. Hmm. Um, It also kind of screams a bit misogynistic to me mm-hmm. rather than being like, like I like all three of us here are feminists and, and it's like, it's a little bit like... I feel like, oh, like, I don't want to read it everything that, like, he, like, for characters <laughs> say, but it's also like, why do you have to say, what are you? You could just be impressed that she's, like, strong and stuff and ask her and be like, oh, like, if you're a soldier, maybe assume that she works out, that she trains, all these things, but it's like, you have to go in and be like, clearly there's something going on. Like, what are you? It's like, maybe just like, I don't know, like, the way, like, I agree with you, Sarah, the way that he's phrasing it is so, like, weird to me yeah it's intentional and here's the thing we have to remember that riley has a very particular ideology that he has been raised with um in the initiative i don't i'm not talking about his childhood or whatever i'm talking about in the in, south yeah he's not the south <laughs> Sorry, Iowa so is not the south. So it's the midwest i take it back everyone so Riley, we have to remember, is coming from a very specific ideology. He is being conditioned. Yes. Riley is being conditioned. That's a good word. By Maggie Walsh. I mean, she's already dropped the operant conditioning word. We already know what they're doing with um, demons and stuff. And so we have to recognize that for Riley, to him, seeing a person that is exhibiting the strength that a demon would normally exhibit because we know that Buffy is stronger than demons and is a girl. This is radical for him. This is not something he's ever experienced before. So yes, I think this is supposed to be semi-misogynistic because I think the initiative is misogynistic and they're intentionally making that callback. Um, and they they talk about that with Forrest. We'll talk about that when we get there too. Um, but I think that this puts Buffy on her guard. And I think that Something Blue was all about Buffy not being sure that Riley was boyfriend material because the danger wasn't there. And then by the end of the episode, she realizes that Normal was good and decided that's what she wanted. I think but that now- she just denied her gut. Like, I just really feel like he mm. convinced her out of what her gut instinct was. I just yeah. feel like there's just a lot of screaming underlined patriarchal versus feminist undertones in this episode between like Buffy and Riley. Um, and I think we saw a lot of his – I mean, this is the episode that the gang sees him as a G.I. Joe, I guess. Right. And it's like – it's very like up in the forefront. They have lots of conversations about – this is the first time we've seen his room and his like whatever that little apartment thing is for the initiative. No, Tabs, you are spot on because um, Douglas Petrie has said this season is all about science versus magic mm-hmm. and magic is – you know, coded as feminine, science is masculine. So this episode is a very clear clash of two ideologies, science, magic, feminism, patriarchy. Like Which that, is such an interesting idea, especially with, it is. with yeah. Willow 
kind of like leaning into her witchy stuff this season. Like, I just wish that we sharpened it a little bit better in this season. I'm not going to lie about that. I love Buffy. I mm-hmm. love the death. And I love the some of the directions that they go with that. Um, and there's some really good stuff in this season. I just wish that we just kind of leaned more into it and like mm. sharpened it a bit more, in my opinion. Sure. It's not That's bad. Fair. I just kind of yeah. wish that it was a little bit better. Yeah, I think episodes like this are amazing because like this is super interesting stuff that we're talking about. It's just not packaged well. Yeah. So Buffy's kind of second guessing everything, wondering if this is real because if they were not honest and truthful with each other, if Riley was not honest with her, then what does that say about his feelings about her? Is that going to change now that he knows that she's the slayer? Because all he's dwelling on is her speed, her strength. And she's like, hey, I'm human. I'm still the girl that you like. Um. And I will acknowledge, and I think Buffy acknowledges this as well, is the irony is that Buffy doesn't want to be seen as just a slayer, but she also balks at dating Riley simply because he is a demon fighter. So she kind of is doing the same thing to him. However, I will say, did you guys notice that Buffy is 100% honest with him in this moment and and Riley isn't 100% honest with her? I also wanted to add, I think that Buffy has more validity in questioning Riley than Riley does in her, simply because Mm. Buffy did not choose to be the Slayer. Buffy is the Slayer. That is her calling. That is her duty. That is her job. That's her life. That is everything. She was literally, she's literally called the Chosen, not the person who chose. Like, the whole- (sighs) The Choser. Yeah, no, literally. It's like, she literally had zero choice. Yes, she chooses not to just sit at home, but it's like- she didn't choose to be the Slayer. She talks about so many times how she wishes she wasn't. And so I think it's okay for her to, A, be looking into who he is, what they're doing, all this, but also be be questioning it because in her mind, it's like, why would anyone willingly do this to themselves? Mm. Why would they willingly go out and sacrifice a normal life to be a part of a system that just fights demons? And you don't even have powers. No one chose it for you, all this stuff. I think that I would kind of be like, what's your ulterior motive? Yeah. Well, I think she talks about that later when she's she's like, you just think this is an adventure. You just think this is fun. And that's why she's like, that's the difference between us. Like, this is destiny. This is something I can't run away from. And I'm actually in the thick of it, which means I have a more realistic viewpoint of it. And I've actually seen death. I This is not my first first apocalypse, you know? And he's over there like, whoa, this is so exciting. That right there, like, and throughout this episode, it's so interesting how they show Riley's naivety when it comes to this kind of stuff. They show it over and over again versus Buffy over here with like PTSD from dying from the last earthquake. This just like every one of their conversations just remind me so much of what it's like not all the time because there definitely are people who are like re- listen really well and really are good at empathizing. But as a woman, this just reminds me of when you're just trying to explain to a man what it's like by being a woman, by going to a gas station and fearing mm. like what mm-hmm. guys do walking across the street mm-hmm. and there's a guy walking in the same direction. It's like you're like, I want to want to run across the street to the other side. It's like guys will be like, mm-hmm. well, like, yeah, gas stations are kind of scary. And you're like, but you will never know. Sure. What it's like from a woman's perspective, That's you know, really it's like point, it, it, 
every one of those conversations, it's like, it's him being like, well, like, it's just your mentality. It's like, well, of course I'm going to think that based on my past experiences. (laughs) Of course I'm going to do that. Like, like, of course I'm going to be scared if a man's walking on the same side of the street as me, if he's following me for a block, if like, I might guess he shouldn't be cornering me, if he won't leave me alone. Like, obviously I'm going to be scared. It's like, you have to like, it's the whole mentality of like, you, you, treat every gun as if it's loaded even if you every even if everyone's telling you it's not you know so it's like every one of these conversations just gave me that same vibe yeah that's a really good point tabs so riley is loath to tell her what he can do buffy is 100 percent honest with him so then she fills in the blanks riley looks like really like sketched out by the fact that she knows so much um and then she's like well is your name really even Riley? Are you even from Iowa? Riley's like, no, that is me. That's who I am. And you have not been honest here as well. And Buffy kind of was like, okay, like you should, you should know who I am. If you're chasing demons, then you should know who I am. And so she says, I'm the Slayer. Riley has no clue who the Slayer is. And it's interesting because Buffy starts to tell him in the script, it says, in every generation, and then she stops. You know, I really don't feel like doing the routine. Ask around, look it up. Slayer, comma, the. I really like that Buffy says this because I think it kind of goes back to what you're saying, Tabby. It's like the, I'm too tired to educate you. <laughs> like, go do the research yourself and come back to me once you have a better appreciation for what I do. And I always like, I always was bummed about that part. I still kind of am because I'm like, no, I want to see her explain it. I want him to come to that realization. Like, it'd be really cool. But then I'm like, you know what? No, like Riley should go do the work for himself. And you know what? I'm sure over time he's going to see who Buffy is and what she's capable of. Um, So I kind of liked that moment. Um, So then they basically decide that they are going to kind of take a break, take some time apart, talk about things. Um, and I do have to give a shout out to Mark Lucas because I feel like he acted really, really well in this this episode. I feel like he emotes really well with his eyes. He does a lot of face acting. I feel like there's some actors, especially newer ones, who they're saying the part and maybe like their face is doing what it needs to, but their eyes are not selling it. And if an actor's eyes don't sell mm. it, I don't believe them. And it's I, all about the meta. I believe Mark in our monologue. Yes, you have yeah. to go through the emotions in your brain in order to convey it. Well, it's like you can memorize like your uh, facial reactions and lines but like you're saying sir like you have to believe it in the eyes and by believing in the eyes which means you have to believe it in your emotions that's why yeah. sarah michelle geller is so freaking good because sometimes she won't even say a single thing and you're you're feeling every single emotion that she's going through in her eyes something that i've seen a lot of actors say who have worked with Sarah Michelle Gellar is she is very gracious and she's very professional, but she really brings out the best in people. And I feel like you see that in a lot of the performances around her. People rise to the level that she gives them. And it's probably very easy to work with her because she gives it her all. So it's easy for you to embody your character when she's doing Mm -hmm. so as well. So I have to give both of them props for that. So Riley starts to leave and Earthquake goes, I will give Riley props. He goes immediately for Buffy, tries to make sure that she is safe underneath for the doorway sure. as well as himself. Yay, Riley. <laughs> Yay, Riley. We've got to throw him his bones where we can because he's not a bad guy. I just feel like no, the writers sure. are shooting themselves in the foot with giving him such crappy dialogue. And then I love the little reminders of Amy still being there. So it ends. Buffy is very visibly disturbed. Riley's like giddy, like, wow, this is my first earthquake. 
Um, and the music that plays while Buffy is kind of crossing to the window is the Buffy theme just in minor. And it gives us a call back to Prophecy Girl when the theme played after the master rose and Buffy was on her way to go kill him. And I think that's kind of powerful. So then in Xander's basement, a water pipe has been knocked loose because of the earthquake. Spike is over there complaining, my sleeping chair is, is this, <laughs> my sodden sleeping chair is bloody sodden. <laughs> I got to say, the B-plot with Spike and Xander is by far my favorite part of this episode. I oh can't gosh, get enough of this dynamic. When he turns around and he like tries to hit him with the pipe and then his head hurts <laughs> and Xander doesn't even notice. Genius. So Xander's like getting pots and bowls and trying to just like put them underneath the pipes. And he's like trying to say like, earn your keep, Spike. Spike's like not having it. He's like, I'm not a plumber. I'm not going to do anything. Xander rightfully calls him out on his crap, says, you're just a big mooch. She doesn't lift a finger around here. Spike retaliates and says, well, you're just, you know, delivering pizzas. And Xander's like, I'm the one paying for the rent. And it's just, it's, it's interesting how they're both insulting each other on the one thing that they know is going to get under their skin. Like Spike doesn't want to be where he's at. Xander doesn't want to be where he's at. Both of them know it, and they're both kind of miserable, and so they're just poking at each other. So in Buffy and Willow's dorm room, Buffy's getting ready to head out. Willow comes in. She talks about how she was in the library. They were talking about the quake. Willow immediately tells something is off with Buffy, and Buffy's like, oh, no, I'm just going to go talk to Giles. And Willow's like, wait, is something wrong? Buffy kind of like brushes it off because she promised Riley that she wouldn't tell anybody that he was in the initiative. So mm-hmm. she's kind of like feeling stuck, which I feel like the Scoobies are a free pass. I feel like you should be able to tell the Scoobies, but that's just me. I also am like a firm believer in like, and I feel like this may be controversial, but like I'm a firm believer in it's healthy to like tell From your closest friends. Other friends. Yes. Like, yeah. I yeah. obviously not everything. Like if someone comes up to you and they share like something really traumatizing, like, you know, they had a crazy experience with someone, you know, or something happened to them, whatever it is. Like if someone shares something with you in utter confidence, that's really personal. That's different. But I'm saying if like you find out that someone lied to you or you find out that, you know, something like that where it's like something happened to you, I'm a firm yeah. believer and you can share that with your right. friends and people that are close to you because it's what happened to you. Well, and they're going to keep the secret. They also don't know that the initiative is bad. Like they think that they're maybe not doing some great things with the demons, but they're demons. Mm-hmm. So this also might come around to bite them if not everyone knows. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So Willow says that this dorm is having an aftershock party, invites Buffy, says, hey, you should bring Riley. Buffy's like, oh, Riley's busy. I'll meet up with you there. I'm going to go see Giles. So this is important because of what happens later. Buffy leaves to go see Giles. And I'm going to be honest with you guys. I really, really struggle to follow along with the dialogue in this episode or in this scene because of the dubbing. It is Mm -hmm. so completely distracting. Like I had to go back and watch it two or three times because I just have trouble focusing. It's really bad. Same. So basically, Giles is like, it was an earthquake, Buffy. It's not an uncommon occurrence. Buffy's like, "Um, I've got a reason to be worried. The last time there was an earthquake, I died. And Giles is like, you know, I, I understand your anxiety. And then Buffy says, oh, good. Hate for my little untimely, horrible death concern to be ambiguous. And then Giles goes straight into, 
Unless evidence suggests otherwise, I think we should assume this was the result of shifting land masses and not portent of imminent doom. Okay. So here's the thing. I don't think Giles is being uh, like necessarily unkind here. And I think he does have a point in her not borrowing trouble. But again, Buffy's instincts are always right on. And I think his response to her concerns, coupled with Riley's response, coupled with the gang's history of not believing Buffy, and it's just a toxic pattern of everyone just brushing Buffy's feelings under the rug. And like it's just kind of discouraging to see it yet again. I think that that could be a theme of the show is like people <laughs> genuinely always underplaying. Like Buffy yeah. has genuine PTSD. Like she died. Yeah. And I'll give them a pass in a certain extent that it's like Buffy is so tough that I think that they forget how much she's been through. But it's also like she literally died. Like – on the last event like this. So it's completely valid for her to be shooken up, shaken up, whatever. Like for real, like Buffy's pain is like used as like a joke to the writers and then like dismissed by the characters. Like literally 95% of the yeah. time. I'm like, guys, this poor girl. And she never complains. You could just see that it weighs on her. Like, yeah. I mean, without like spoilers, I don't know, whatever. But, like, you could definitely tell Buffy, like, is just weighed down by the end of the series. Like, you could tell that, like, she's just burdened by so much. And that's just Sarah Michelle Gellar's acting. Um, but, like, it just takes a toll. Even, like, her little, like, perky, like, season two, season one self is not quite the same. Like, she's still Buffy in right. season four. But it there's a slight, a slight change in season four. Um, yeah. And again, that's just that's just Sarah understanding Sarah SMG, not Sarah. Her name is Sarah, I understand but it's everything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just SMG understanding Buffy to her core. So then Giles is like, "Hey, um, like you know, poo poo with the earthquake. Um, actually, I think I know who the initiative is." And he pulls out this giant foam board and Buffy's like oh really and he's like yeah I think that they're actually gonna be underneath your school and she's like oh okay and she tries to like redirect and be like you know what? I don't know why she doesn't just tell Giles I know I know I mean if anything like the initiative is technically kind of a safety concern because they are civilians in their minds yeah and so it's like it is something that Giles kind of should know about so then we cut over to Riley, and he's talking to Forrest. He's like, what's a Slayer? And Forrest is like, Slayer? Oh, not this man. Get him off <laughs> my freaking screen. So Riley's like, no, it's a girl with powers. So, okay, I'm realizing why I don't like Forrest. And I think it's because <laughs> you're realizing not- now <laughs> yeah, well, you're realizing I, that. I mean, I mean, no, I'm like, okay, why is the show making him unlikable? Because obviously, it's because sometimes- it wants Riley to look like the good guy. Yeah, I think I think he's not meant to be li- likable. Unfortunately, I think they're using him as the voice of the initiative, and that's not supposed to be a positive thing. I think they want us to see what the initiative is, and they want us to recognize that Riley has faults and flaws because of the initiative, but that he's not as bad as he could be. And who is that mirror they're holding him up to? Forrest, the only person of color that is currently on this show that is a reoccurring character other than Olivia, but she only pops in once in a while. So it's not a good look and I'm frustrated with it. I also just think it's kind of purposeful. I think it's an easy way of writing in a character that gets screen time, but being lazy about their character. 
Like yeah. instead of like giving, you know, because I mean, like I don't like Forrest, but they could have tried, could have tried to yeah. give him motive, desires. Like you don't have to make, you know, a person of color a likable character, but you should give them the same type of like character development that you give to your other like antagonists, villains, or just side characters. You know, I just think that it's not the fact that he's an annoying character that bothers me. It's the fact that he is a lazily written character. And I think that we have seen that a lot when it comes to the people of color that they just kind of skip corners when it comes to those characters specifically. I think it's a pattern. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's frustrating because if Riley were better written, I don't think you would need Forrest because I don't mm-hmm. necessarily think you would have to have Riley having someone to like contrast him with. I think Riley would be able to stand on his own as a fleshed out character. Um, and I think, honestly, I don't think the writers know how to write Riley. And so they're having to use all this other stuff to prop him up. If you have to compare the good and bad between different characters in order to make one character shine, that's just not good writing. Yeah, I agree. Or if you have to literally sabotage a character's storyline to make one good, maybe you should just focus on making that one good. And I think you can um I think you can have one character make another character look good, but I think there are good ways to do it and bad ways. And this is just completely lazy, completely. Um so basically Forrest says that the slayer is a myth. It's kind of like a boogeyman for the subterrestrials, something they tell their little spawn to get them to eat their vegetables and clean up their slime. So this is really interesting because like this entire conversation is about Forrest trying to dehumanize demons and Riley as well. And you can tell that's because that's something that the initiative has ingrained in them. Like they're not, I mean, they're not humans, but like they're not sentient. They're they're just animals is what they call them. Um, and they do it to justify what they're doing to them because it's a lot easier to swallow the taking away free will, taking away choice, um, and beating them if they are just animals. I mean, I don't think you should do that to animals either, but it's still easier to stomach than realizing that these are, you know, fully functioning beings who can talk, communicate, have their own culture you know, all that stuff. And since the Slayer has powers, she is uncomfortably close to that line. Um, Again, the whole science versus magic thing, which is really interesting. So then we have this whole demon trying to get away. They go in there and start fighting him and, you know, end up saying, see, just animals. So then we're at this wild party and Willow is kind of like sitting there like a fish out of water, kind of waiting for Buffy um, also, I think it's funny how Willow like is constantly the one going to these parties when she never really seems quite comfortable there. And it cracks me up because I never thought Willow would be the party animal of the like the three of them. But I mean, it totally makes sense when you think about it, though, because it's like, who the frick is inviting Xander anywhere ever, <laughs> especially a party? And also, like, <laughs> Buffy has no time to even date, yeah. let alone go to parties. That's true. I'm proud yeah. of her, though. Like, high school Willow would, like, not be caught dead there. But the fact that, like, I have always struggled with just social anxiety. This is 
a bit personal, but whatever. We have a podcast. But I just like I just really struggle with like big crowds. Like I get really anxious about it. Even if I know people there, if I don't know people there, it's even worse. And like I have felt like Willow in this scene. And I'm just proud of her because we've seen her in multiple situations by putting herself out there. And even though she looks she you could tell that she feels awkward, like it, she's still it, trying. It, exactly. She's still – she's continuing to go. And it's not to the point where, like, you could tell that she's miserable. It's more of, like, her being like, who do I talk to? Um, but the fact that she sees, like, Percy and goes up to talk to him. Oh, and I Percy. will say, <laughs> I freaking love Percy. Here's the thing. He was really nice to her, like, up until the girl that he was dating. And this is a very – yeah, it's a crappy thing to do because, like, what he says or whatever. To me, it just translated as – a 18-year-old boy who's trying to just get late that night and just mm-hmm. says something because the girl's, like, really jealous in the moment. But I just, like, he was being really nice to Willow, like, at the beginning of the party, asked her about Oz, and it was, like, it was really casual with her. Um, I don't think what he says was said was nice or at all. I just don't really think he, like, thought much about it. I don't, it didn't yeah. seem malicious to me. It just kind of was, like, I'll just say whatever I can. Just that, like, this girl will like me. But I Yeah, like he just Percy. seemed kind of clueless. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I also want to say that this is probably really hard for Willow to go to parties and such after breaking up with Oz because he yeah. was probably the one that went with her or his band would play and she'd have something to talk about and something to do. And so we're watching Willow flounder on multiple mm-hmm. levels here. And I really feel for her because the beginning of season, she was just thriving. And it's really hard to see her just kind of trying to get her mojo back again. So Willow's like, okay, Buffy, we'll get here soon. Then the fun will start. Then we see this like random partier who's in there like, yeah, guys, are you serious about naked limbo? I'm in. Is he's like mixing drinks. He also like puts in like solo cup and then like, puts it like under his armpit to carry it out. And I was like, ew. <laughs> I don't want to drink that. It deserves death. <laughs> That's he's it. the villain of the episode. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so then he ends up dying quite graphically too some of these deaths recently have been really graphic well i i just have a thing with like throat slits they are just one of those things i can't stand to watch i i just it's like one of my worst nightmares of ways to to die to go like i don't even like like my neck is so sensitive to me I just can't. no like like when people like hug or like like put their arms around my neck that makes me uncomfortable. So like even watching things like this, I'm like oh like I just that's my worst nightmare. And then they pan down and then you watch like the blood just like pool. I'm like ew. I just you don't think that that would like be shown on like a Buffy episode, but I don't know. I just was like yeah. I I forgot about that. I was like oh jeez. Yeah. I feel like we talked about this on Pangs. It was like especially graphic there. And then Hush with the Gentleman. And then now this episode, I feel like they've just been really graphic recently. It's because they're in college now. Oh, yeah. They're in college. They're like, they're older. Let's put everything that's going on in there. (laughs) They can handle blood now. It's all good. So Willow's like, Buffy, where are you? I feel so bad for her. It's nobody's fault, really. Like, there's other things happening. Willow overhears Percy, that whole conversation. So sad. Also, Percy, she saved your life, dude. You can stick up for her, but I mean. He didn't know that she saved his life, though. (laughs) No, because she went um, in season three. Percy was right next to Angel 
battling Oh, you're talking everybody. about graduation day. Oh. Yes. Oh. I thought yeah. you were talking about um the wish. So Willow's just feeling really like bummed out. I understand. Okay, understand Willow's big feelings. I understand that they needed to get Willow into the same room as this guy, but this is the most contrived part of the entire episode. You're telling me she wouldn't turn on the light? You're <laughs> telling me she would go into some random guy's bedroom and lie guy's down. bedroom and lay on his bed? In a random dorm? And then without sprawling out too. Like there's so many things that you're like, Not feel someone next to you even like, I just. Ooh. ooh, (laughs) The thought of having like someone next to you and then a corpse. Like I just, no. Yeah. Feeling feeling how cold it is before you like, yeah. Ew. Okay. We don't need to go into detail about this. I'm like, ooh. (laughs) But seriously. Yeah. Anyway, whatever. We also hear Oz and Willow's theme. Which I always forget that Willow is still wrestling with Oz's departure at this point. And I really, really love that they're taking their time with this. I really, really do. This is something that Buffyverse is getting better about because initially they were not great about it. Um, and I think it's I think it's perfect. So the lights come back on. Willow sees the guy. It's incredibly graphic, gross. And we cut to Xander's basement. Um, so Xander comes back in. It says Xander enters from the door at the top of the stairs wearing his uniform and cap and finishing a slice of pizza. There's a jaunt in his step, a tune in his heart, the picture of unsuspecting innocence. (laughs) And then we hear, don't turn around. (laughs) The music just helps this scene so much. It's so funny. So he's like, oh my gosh, you didn't do anything. Like there's water everywhere. Like I thought you were going to do the laundry. This place is worse than when I left. Spike's like, don't turn around. He's like, what is it? What happened? Don't look at me. It's it's horrible. And <laughs> we turn around and then it's like, wah, wah. And there's no, Spike. I know that everyone like cracks up over his Hawaiian shirt. My favorite part of the, the fit is the fact that he's wearing his boots with the shorts. <laughs> <laughs> It's and so the socks—he <laughs> looks like he looks like a dad about to go mow the lawn on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> no, it reminds me of like when you're a kid and your mom just texts you like, "Okay, come help out, help out with the groceries," <laughs> and it's like you literally just put on like shoes and whatever is around to just like run outside really quick. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's exactly the what image. It's because you've been lying down all day, or or like um where we used to live in Lancaster, be freezing, and so I'd be <laughs> I'd be wearing like. Uh, like shorts, but then like a long sleeve, and so you just throw sweats on over the baggy shorts I'd be wearing. So I'd be like this lumpy mess, and then throw like UGG boots on. All of us, six of us, be outside looking so ugly. Then you stand up too fast and have to like hold the wall for a minute because you're gonna pass out. <laughs> <laughs> yep, or just me. Oh, maybe I need to take more iron. No, that's definitely <laughs> me. <laughs> so Spike is standing there holding. His shirts and trousers. He says, I shrunk them. My bleeding shirts and trousers. Spike holds up his regular shirt. Now teeny weeny. Xander can barely contain himself. He bursts out laughing. So this whole dialogue was cut from the episode and it's just absolutely hysterical. Xander says, look at you. You have knees. Very white knees. Spike sits on the sofa dejected. The cutoffs right up. He stands back up, tugs them into place. Damn things keep doing that. Xander, you know I'm not any happier about you wearing my stuff than you are. Spike, that cannot be true. Don't know how you let yourself be seen in this. <laughs> Wanker wear. <laughs> what an insult. Uh, and then Xander says, hey, I'm known as a very sharp dresser. And then he looks at his his dopey uniform that he's wearing. 
Oh my gosh. And then Spike's like, get out, go get me some decent stuff. And I want more blood. The audacity of this man. (laughs) Oh man, he is really milking this initiative stuff. Like why is Spike still alive? I don't get it. I don't get it. Like there's no point for him to be around. Like they have pumped him for all the information they're going to get at this point. Like it doesn't make sense. I think it's just the guilt. The idea of killing someone that isn't necessarily fighting back. I think it's the guilt. Yeah. Well, Xander actually says that here. He says, no, you're not a guest. You're a vampire and you have no soul and don't get exactly why we're not making you spike on a stick. And so then Xander gets angry, gets in his face and like insults him pretty badly and says, you're not worth it. And then leaves. So Buffy arrives at the dorm, sees a poor traumatized Willow, and Buffy is kind of feeling down herself. She's like, I was unsure where the party was. Then I saw the flashing red lights and I was like, oh, right. Carnage, death. It's a Buffy party. That's so sad. Willow says, I'm so glad you're here. She's traumatized, not just about finding the dead guy on the bed, but the fact that Percy called her a nerd. Buffy's very supportive. (laughs) The fact that she says, not the fact that she found the dead body on the bed, (laughs) but that someone called her a loser. That is so funny. That that explains the Buffy verse so well. (laughs) Yeah, they're like, we're used to the normal stuff. She's like, someone calling me a loser? (laughs) <laughs> she's like so much blood godfather horse head amounts of blood hold the horse and there was a symbol and percy said i was a nerd and then buffy's like out of all of that percy called you a nerd and then i was like is that not what you are willow like but then again there's a very different connotation in today i was about to say the 90s and 2000s that was a yeah. huge insult yeah because yeah. cliches wasn't- were huge it wasn't even that that was a huge insult. It's just that labels were huge in the 90s. Like everyone cared a lot what other people mm. thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that just in general, if you didn't have the specific – I mean, even being called a loner in the 90s was like, oh. It's like if you weren't if you weren't literally the popular jock person, then you were an outcast. Yeah. People just be dead inside like Leah and then you don't have to care about labels. You don't have to care about, you know. Oh, oh my gosh. Oh. <laughs> I'm just kidding. (laughs) I like how Buffy says, does Percy even go here? Is it, um, was that in Mean Girls or was that Cher? Who's all like, Mean Girls. It's Mean Girls. Girls. It doesn't even go here. All right. So then we're in Riley's room and (sighs) Forrest is just grating. He's even worse in this episode or this scene. I keep saying episode. I'm telling you, he's just in love with him. He's in love with him. That there's maybe there's literally no other good reason why Forrest would have such strong opinions about <laughs> Riley and his life. There's literally none. There's literally not one no, there good is. reason. There is. There is a good reason. And I mean, he could be in love with them. Fair. But I think it's more they're going for the uber sexist macho vibes that Forrest is supposed to have from the initiative. And he doesn't like that his bro, who's supposed to be all rah-rah about demons and stuff, is starting to veer over into Buffy territory and hang out with Buffy and is not thinking about the mission as much. And it's like the operant conditioning thing. You're just supposed to be mission-minded. And Riley is starting to deter from that. And also it's the whole feminism versus patriarchy thing too. So it's like it's the subtext of, oh my gosh, Riley's going to turn feminist because of Buffy. Um, and I don't think that Forrest likes that. So I think we that- We lost a brother. We lost a brother. <laughs> Moment of silence for our fallen comrade. <laughs> Forrest goes home and, and cries. He's like, we lost Riley. 
to Buffy. He's like, oh, darn. I guess I'm going to have to be the one in charge now. Well, it's also the mentality. It's also like the military mentality of like no free thinker. Like everyone thinks the same. Everyone acts the same. Like you you are a part of the cause. Yeah. I won't say that's necessarily a general military thing as someone who is actually in the military, <laughs> but like that is a common stereotype for sure of the military. Riley is obviously very distracted. He keeps swishing – or not swishing. He keeps missing his basketballs. Okay, Graham comes in <laughs> and and then they hit him in the head with the ball. And okay, the way that this actor pl- that plays Graham portrays this, you think his best friend died as he's like relaying the fact that someone got hurt or no, someone got killed at the party. And the way that it's written in the script, like he's just supposed to come in and say, hey, guys, like someone got killed. Like we need to go do this thing. But he plays it off as like, hey, my dearest and deepest friend. And now we must go into mourning, my brothers. Like it's just very like you could tell this guy was milking his one scene that he's had in three episodes for all it's worth. I just forget Grimm's here. Like he's such a nicer Aww. person. I'm like, can we just he be is. friends with him instead? My goodness, get a force out of here. I just want to see <laughs> Graham. He's so nice. He doesn't say a word. And he just kind of sits there quietly and like yeah. and then backs up Riley when he needs to. And yeah, I like Graham, man. All right, so then Riley's like, all right, see if this falls into our domain. Alert Professor Walsh. Tell the, tell her we have a casualty. Let's not make a move until we get the whole story. Sends in their orders. They leave. Giles' apartment. And Willow's talking about how this makes her feel like she was right back in high school. And Xander's like backing her up. He's like, dumb jock. If it wasn't for you, he still would be. And then Willow's like, okay, perspective, Willow. If it, Percy's not the important thing here. The dead guy in the bed is. And Xander's like, yeah, that's bad too. <laughs> but I think like it's moments like this that are supposed to highlight and showcase how the gang actually has grown up from high school. They just don't even realize it yet. I think it's also just sweet seeing Xander back his friend. It's small moments, but I think that that's – it's moments like this where it's like they actually feel like friends because like yeah. that's what you do when you're friends. Like you back them up. Even if it's something that you wouldn't be hurt yourself for, it's something that you know your friend is hurt over, so therefore you're hurt over it. Yeah. Okay. I have a question for you guys. So Willis is a really interesting line. She says – And I haven't been a nerd for a long time. Hello, dating a guitarist. So I'm really curious. Do you guys think there is a pattern of Willow basing her identity on her relationship with Oz? I don't think it's that she – it's just placing her identity in Oz. I think it's Willow has struggled with identity since the beginning of the show. Mm. And she desires to be anything other than uncool and undesired. And so whether it's dating a guitarist, whether it's being a witch, whether it's, you know, being friends with a slayer, whatever it is, like Willow deeply desires to be anything like that isn't just the boring nerd. Yeah, she wants to be accepted. Yeah. I just think it's really interesting that she pulls that in um, because I don't think that is something that's just thrown into this episode. I think the show has reflected it well that when she and Oz were together, that he was like, she even says he was her security blanket in Wild at Heart. Um, and I think that you're rightly, I think she places her identity in so many other things. And Oz was just one more thing for her to place her identity in. So then Willow tells them about the symbol. Giles kind of figures out that this is the end of the world. 
um, says that, you know, the earthquakes, all the stuff. And Buffy's like, I told you. I said, end of the world. And you're all like, poo, poo, mm-hmm. Southern California. <laughs> Dude, I laughed when she said, poo, 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 poo. <laughs> yes. Every time they just like shut her down and she's always right. Like, mm-hmm. when are we going to learn? What, okay, but for real though, can we just say, like, when has Buffy ever been wrong? Can we think um, of one scenario where she's been like like full on wrong? Like not like a, a small situation, like full on, like her no. gut is wrong. Thank you. Like so like why are we still questioning her? Yeah. Yeah. Not ever. I mean, maybe like the one time that she left Sunnydale because of Angel, but that was grief. That wasn't like her gut. That's telling not her that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like that that's like mourning and and trauma. I'm but about, it also yeah. wasn't a gut feeling. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, something's happening, blah, 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 blah. Well, I'm thinking of Dead Men's Party when everybody is like ganging up on her because they did have somewhat of a point, but that's not a premonition type thing. But yeah, you're right, Taps. There is none. There is none. Doesn't make sense. So Giles is all like, all right, well, this is the end. This is the impending apocalypse. And everyone's like, well, what do we do? And Buffy grabs her crossbow, which again, another callback to the se- first season because Buffy always grabs her crossbow. So then. We cut to the cemetery and Buffy, (laughs) she looks up at the symbol on the crypt and is like, oh, I wonder where I've seen this before. Where else? The place I spend almost all my waking hours memorizing stuff on the sides of mausoleums, big freaky cereal boxes of death. I was dying because like, you know, who hasn't sat down for cereal in the morning and you're bored before phones and you would just sit and read the back of the cereal box? I love when they had games. Yeah. Well, they had some fun trivia stuff on there too. I forgot about that. Sometimes they'd have crossword puzzles and like – Yeah. I'm forgetting what the other one's called. But yeah, those are fun. So then she hears something. The guy's in there getting what we've learned later is the bones of the child. They start fighting. There's some pretty cool stunt work in here. At one point, she like kicks him out of the mausoleum and then she like runs on top of him to get out. The stunt work in this episode is really good. And we didn't get a lot of fighting. And I just – I. And this is so funny coming out of my mouth because action movies are like my least favorite genre. Um, other than stuff in like the 80s or 90s because there's actual physical – like the actors are like practicing their moves. You could tell that they're doing a lot of it. Um, and there's a lot of stunt doubles. Whereas like now it's like a lot of CGI and um, unrealistic stunts. Like a good example would be like Die Hard. Like the original Die Hard is so good because you could see like Bruce Willis like practicing the steps of like swinging and then you like – I don't know. Anyway, all that to say, action movies are so boring to me because I'm like, oh, this is just CGI. Like people are flipping all over the place. Like it's just not fun to me. But in Buffy episodes, if I don't get a fight scene, I get sad because yeah. like they're so good. The like choreographing of like – the swinging and they're so creative. Like all the stunts yeah. that they think of every single episode is like it, they tell a story with how she fights every single demon. Um, and I just love watching it. And like Cindy, what's her? Sophia uh, Crawford. Sophia Crawford. I wanted to say Cindy Crawford. That is a model. That <laughs> nope, is that not- is it. Yeah, top model. <laughs> um, no, but she does an excellent job every episode and i genuinely love watching their fights so this episode when we had some really like two really good fight scenes and they were so quick and i was like oh i want more they were probably so good because they just had those two scenes so they were able to put a lot more into it so the demon kind of kicks her butt takes off and she's down and we're like oh no something scary dark it's another demon and it's riley 
Okay, so then this conversation. Get into it, Sarah. Get into oh, it. Oh man. All right. This I'm one's not as it. bad to this than to the second no, one. This yeah. one is not so bad. Yes. All right. So Riley's like impressed. He's like, that's that cool, like a flippy thing that you did right there. Which it is fun. <laughs> it <laughs> is trying fun. to flirt. <laughs> <laughs> Riley just like he's like he's trying to figure it out. But he's seeing Buffy in her element for the first time. And I gotta say, like not really remembering very much of the middle of the season. I'm kind of liking how they're slowly building into the reveals of what Buffy can do for Riley. Like, it's kind of fun. Angel already knew what Buffy could do because he was aware of what Slayers were. But Riley, this is all new territory. So it's kind of fun seeing him discover things and like be genuinely excited about it. So Riley's like, well, there's no weapons, no backup. Like, you don't go after a demon that size by yourself. And Buffy's like, I do. And he's like, yeah, well, I'm no slayer. And so then he pulls out his walkie-talkie. <laughs> his, his code name is Lilac One. so embarrassing. Like, I just <laughs> remember watching this. I literally just remember being like, oh, my gosh. Because it's like Buffy literally – this is a normal Tuesday night for her. She literally goes like no yeah. weapons, nothing, in heels, like strutting out, doing her thing, going home, going to work the next day or going to school the next day. For him, yeah. this is like – it's going to be a long night, boys. You know, everyone has to freaking put their suits on and grab your walkie-talkies and red leader, red leader. Like, that's so embarrassing. It's actually so embarrassing. Like, uh, it just makes them look like such a tryhard. It's just, oh. It's honestly, for me, if I was Buffy, I'd get the X so bad. I'd be like, um. <laughs> Well, I think a big part of it too, though, is like they're trying to showcase how powerful Buffy actually is by saying that you need all these people to do Buffy's job. But it's, it's interesting how like the script says Buffy eyes him with fascination. They're both seeing each other's worlds for the first time. So it's like, okay, we've seen the ugly. Now we've seen the good. Like, where's this going to go? So Riley says he was looking for her, says, we'll, we'll bag the demon. Buffy's like, no, it's not that simple. And he's like, we really need to talk. And Buffy's like, Riley, I just, I can't. And he says, can't talk. And she says, can't any of it. Can't be with you. It's a mistake. It's a huge black pit of a mistake. And I can't go there again. Riley, I, I think this is a fair, fair statement. He says, again, you've dated me before, which yes, like it's not fair for her to lump him into the category of other guys. I will give him that. I think that's a fair thing for him to say. But I also think in her defense, she's not saying that Riley is like Angel, but she's saying, I can't do this again, dating a guy in my field. Yeah. I think she is comparing him to Angel only in that respect because like Passion the Nerd makes a really interesting correlation. There are a lot of parallels between how they're building up Angel and or how they're building up Riley to Angel. So you had both Riley and Angel. They're both demon fighters. They both have secret identities. You know, so there's like things that are kind of lining up. They both hide that secret identity from Buffy who discovers it. Like there's, I think that throws her. I think the fact that she's realizing that Riley maybe actually has more in common with Angel than she first thought, I think that throws her. And I think in her mind, she's like, oh no, can't do this again. So I think she is equating them. Um, so then she says, you don't know what my life is like. And she seems like she's about to have a panic attack. Like she's genuinely starting to kind of like breathe deeply. And all she can think about is the time that she died. All she can think about is the time that she had to kill the man she loved. She doesn't want to hurt anyone else like that. 
Um, and then also in lie to me when she says to Angel, I love you. I don't know if I trust you. I think Buffy is seeing patterns here and it's freaking her out. Riley says, I'm dying to find out. And Buffy says, operative word, dying. There's too much to risk. There's too much. It's just doomed. Okay. And I can't doomed again right now. Riley says, I don't understand where this is coming from. I know you like me and it's not like we don't have anything in common again. Okay. This is another good point. She wasn't this concerned about him before she found out she was, he was in the initiative. Technically they're better suited now than they were before, but I think he, what he should have done what the writers should have made Riley do is have him go, Okay, tell me. Tell me about your past. Mm-hmm. Open up to me. He's not asking her this. or listening to her. He's projecting yeah. and like kind of pushing her too much. It's like, boy, maybe like clearly she's like not emotionally able to open up. So maybe give her the space to feel comfortable enough to open up to you. Like you're not doing that at all. But also in his defense, he genuinely has zero idea what her life is like. Right. And so in his in his mind, he's he's simplifying it in a mind of like, well, we both fight the same thing. We both, you know, yeah. know what it's like to have a secret life, blah, blah, blah. So in his mind, he's like, this is great. No secrets works out. But in her mind, she's just going, I've been here. I've done this. And I also think she's getting flashbacks of some of the guys in her past who were just thrill seekers. She's going, they end up, they end up dead or they end up hurt or, or it's like, I end up hurt. Like it just never works out. Yeah. I think people often forget about Owen, you know? Mm. I get that Leah up until the point where she literally says she names things that she's gone through and then he still bulldozes over that. She goes, apocalypse, death, a girl I knew who found this fun is in a coma. Like she literally like name drops all these things in the first conversation. And then he just is like, I just think that this like handsome guy did you wrong. And that's part of the reason why. And she's like, "Mm, no, you're not listening. Like that's part of it. Yeah. But like there's so many other things. No, absolutely. I'm not saying that I completely side with him or anything. I'm just trying to give him a little bit of a like just some understanding of like, I think he starts out coming from a place of genuine, like not understanding, like just of like, what? Like we, this should help us now. Um, But that's when he should stop and be like, okay, wait, maybe I'm not understanding the full picture. Mm-hmm. Not Leah team Riley. No, no I know. I think you're being, I'd rather die. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're being really bounced Leah. And I think that's really good. Um, Yeah. He's not, bad in this conversation. It's the next conversation that we're going to talk about. But anyway, yeah, this <laughs> this line though is – it starts off really icky. It gets a little bit better. He says, I can feel my skin humming, my hands, my every inch of me. Okay, Riley. Um, I've never been this excited by a girl and I'm not trying to scare you. So this is – he gets better. I'm not going to force myself on you, but I am, by God, not going to walk away when I think it might not work. When he said that, I was like, I totally get that, Riley. Like, I'm here for that. I just, when he kept talking, I was like, okay, shush. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, and I think he has a point. Like, why shut this down when we haven't even tried, when you don't have, like, actual really valid points, you know, or valid reasons for not doing this? If it's just fear holding you back, that's not necessarily valid, you know? Um, yes. And then Buffy goes on and says, death, pain, apocalypse, none of it fun. Do you know what the hell mouth is? I love this. This is so powerful. Do they have a fancy 
term for it because I went to high school on top of it for three years. We don't have that much in common. This is a job to you. He says, it's not just a job. She says, it's an adventure. Great. But for me, it's destiny. It's something I can't escape, something I can't change. I'm stuck. Um, And this just echoes Buffy's conversation with Kendra and what's my line where Kendra's like, hey, you just think this is a job. No, it's not. It's your destiny. It's who you are. I just, I love how much Buffy has internalized that. Um, Then Riley says, you don't have to be, you're not in high school anymore. You can change things. Okay. And see, for me, this is just not amazing writing. You can see the writers peeking through this dialogue right here. The show has some amazing dialogue that is filled with subtext, but that it also makes sense contextually from where they're at in the episode. And this just feels odd. Like they don't know how to write for him and they're trying to like, you know how like we always talk about how like the teacher, the professor is the one that like gives like the theme for the episode. They gave that to Riley. Yeah, I feel you. So Buffy says, my answer is no. She takes off. The script says that Riley doesn't see her start to cry. Poor Buffy. (laughs) She's going through so much. So they find out it's a viral demon. They're talking about like, you know, father of portents and brother to blight, limbs with talons, blah, blah, blah. And then they also cut over to Riley. And Markfield points out the difference between how the initiative and the Scoobies tackled the information that you're learning about the demons. It's the magic versus science theme. And he says, Riley's view of the demons and his reaction to them stem from his social indoctrination, one of the themes of season four. He's been trained to see the world in a given way, and he's not, yet at least, capable of achieving a deeper understanding. For all the technology the initiative can bring to bear, it can't actually stop the viral demons or even find them because it doesn't understand them. Riley just assumed that the demons were instinctual animals on a crush-kill-destroy spree, while Buffy took the time to acquire actual knowledge of their goal. The seemingly hard-nosed, pragmatic attitude of the initiative, in fact, represents a superficial understanding of the world. This is why Riley has never heard of the Slayer and and why Forrest calls her a myth. Because in their mind, we don't need to actually learn about why they do things and what makes them tick. They're not actual sentient beings that require learning. We just crush, kill, destroy them. And so they don't know what a slayer is because of that. And I thought that was so insightful and so interesting. But it also falls back on the whole idea of they see everything as black and white. Yeah, totally. And yep. I, I think that Buffy also, to some extent, viewed demons and all that in a similar way in season one not to the same extent but i think that it took a lot of growing up and learning and experience for her and giles and everyone to realize like oh it's not black and white it's extremely muddled and confusing but it's interesting as you go back and forth between the initiative and the scoobies the initiative really doesn't have too much information other than the physical and they don't know why they're trying to do what they're doing. They just know we need this is what they look like, this is where they might be, and this is what we're gonna do to kill them. Buffy, on the other hand, they're like, we know how to we know what they want, so we know where to find them and how to stop them. Dude, I just realized we passed over a scene that I was gonna talk about that I thought was like super ironic. The scene where like Forrest and Riley are like talking about how like the Slayer is like a myth and like the, the Easter Bunny. And then they like literally turn the corner and then they're like, there's like a monster walking towards them. Like, you guys, you're not going to believe that a Slayer is real. <laughs> and you have like demons with antlers and yeah. a- antennas and like that suck blood out of people. And you do experiments on like, really? 
Really? Yeah, but the Slayer is too far-fetched. That's like just a like, woman in power. It's just like, honestly, moments like that, I'm like, this is when the, the subtext is like so good because it's like it's like you know it's like the whole mm. metaphor of like I want to see what I want to see I'm gonna and I'm gonna like yeah. reject yep all the things that are real to other people but are actually yeah. real but I'm gonna look at what's in front of me and that's what's real yeah. to me you know I agree and to me I understand why Riley is not compelling for a lot of people and I I 100 get that and I validate that because I think there is like obviously some truth to that. But to me, the most compelling thing about Riley and his story is this is a guy who literally has been almost brainwashed to believe a certain thing. And he's having his ideals and he's having his beliefs challenged through Buffy. And it's super, super interesting whenever you have a character that is going through that to see what's going to be the breaking point for them. What's going to be the moment that they kind of have all of that wool pulled out from their eyes. Like, will they give it all up? Will they decide to just shut their eyes and continue on in blind faith? Like, I just think that is the most compelling part of Riley. And I think I wish they leaned into that a little bit more. I think I, I'm a sucker for stories like that. I think they're so interesting. I just think that we have too much going on in the mm. Buffyverse. And if we already don't feel that compelled with Riley, it's like you're going to have this whole side plot with the initiative and you're going to have to give us more information about it, which means we're going to have more Riley and it's just too much. Um, mm. I just think he doesn't fit in the Buffyverse. If he, there was a whole show about something like the initiative where it was like there's monsters and they and they like think that monsters are like all bad or whatever. And then you could have a whole story about like the metaphors of like or a whole show with the metaphors of just like what life is like with people. Like are people all bad or people all good? Like or is there a mixture of that? Like where is where is that line? And then have somebody like Riley in that who's brainwashed and then has to find his way out. That's really interesting. It's like but you have one season arc of that plus so many other storylines that have been building up for seasons. It just doesn't really – it doesn't really work as well in my opinion. I think it works. I think they just didn't do it well. You know? Yeah. But we'll talk about it when it comes. So the gang learns about the sacrifice of three. They learn that they need the last ingredient, the word of values. They don't know what it is or where it is. So Buffy decides that she's going to go check the magic shop. See, they have a book called The Word of Valios, and Willow and Xander decide to go check the book archives at the museum. So then we go to the basement. There's a stake that has been secured to the edge of Xander's coffee table with a C clamp, and we see Spike perched at the edge of the couch above the coffee table, arms outstretched, ready to impale himself on the stake. Goodbye, Drew. See you in hell. Bro, that made me wheeze. Like, it's uh, it was so funny to me. Spike has lost every shred of his identity. Drusilla, his ability to bite people, and now his clothes. The clothes are the last straw. He's like, that's it. If I can't have my skin-tight black shirt and my leather jacket, there's no point to living anymore. <laughs> the fact that he would think that the stake wouldn't just go limp as they fell on it is so funny to me. Like, you really think it's going to stay upright and then pierce you? As that thing is so dull. It's not sharp at all. Like, what do you think is going to happen? The funny thing was, like, you know, Xander being all offended that Spike didn't ask him to stake him. <laughs> that was the funny. Yep, for sure. 
He was like, wait a minute. He's like, you should have trusted me enough to do it for you. After all like, we've been through. <laughs> He's like, no, he wants to die. I want to help. <laughs> so they're like, okay, we have to bring him along with us. And they're like trying to make him feel better for some reason. They're like, hey, just think about it. There's an impending apocalypse. And Spike's like, really? <laughs> I know. I don't know why they didn't just let him. I know. I, mean, I, know, right? I know it's plot device, but like. I would just be like guilt free. I'd be like, okay. <laughs> yeah, Xander's like, get out of my basement. Also, um, someone pointed out that um, in the Buffyverse, basements are kind of like bad things happen in basements. You had the dead cat in the basement. You had Xander and Cordelia got together in a basement. And then the initiative literally has their entire operation in a basement. And Xander is now living in a basement. And it's all just shown to not be good things. So I thought that was kind of interesting. All right, so Buffy is on her way to the magic shop looking kind of bummed. Riley's across the street with his little device looking for pheromone heat signatures or something like that. They run into each other and this. Did they purposely put him always in uh like camouflage green, army green? Probably. They're like military. Every time he's like in his casual clothes. Like he's wearing like military green like I feel like in every episode. Or just like a plain like beige shirt or like gray shirt. You're like, are you going to give him some like personality? <laughs> he was wearing a lot more colorful shirts before he like was revealed to be in the initiative. Mm. But now he's just like, yeah, it's all green. <laughs> so there was a whole section of the script that was cut out from the scene. Forrest and Graham were actually here. And they were not happy about the fact that Riley wanted to sit and talk with Buffy for a minute. At one point, they like pull Riley aside and Forrest says, we have some giant ass creepy crawly out there and you're chatting up your honey might want to check your priorities. And then Riley says, the good hey, Lord, that was cut to be honest. And then Riley says, Hey, remember that time I asked you your opinion? Gee, neither do I. And then he says, you and Graham <laughs> had <laughs> Leo's like, why Fire did they keep come that back? In? No, for I real. <laughs> because that's actually a personality. Like give him a personality. It's okay for him to yeah. be, kind of snappy with his friends it's okay with him to be snarky or like say something that isn't necessarily the nicest like as long as it just is a personality yeah yeah and so then forrest says i don't know about this girl man she's got you whooped or something fierce and you haven't even and then riley says you'd be wise to not finish that thought private now carry on Forrest stops himself, returns to military form albeit somewhat bitterly and so then they move on and then we have the conversation. So, I mean, it kind of not really super necessary, but I think they're kind of planting the seeds of Forrest being jealous of the amount of time that Riley is spending with Buffy because maybe he's in love with him or maybe he's That's like, That's what I'm hey. saying. <laughs> maybe it's because he just thinks that they should be focused on the mission. However, which way you interpret it, both are valid. Moving on. Okay. So this conversation. Okay. This one's a tough one. So Riley is frustrated. He says, this thing between me and you is stupid. And Buffy says, right, which is why we can't do the you and me thing. Okay, Buffy is being a little extra melancholy and overdramatic. I will say that. And Riley says, no, I mean, you're stupid. I mean, I don't mean that. No, I think maybe I do. Okay. No, okay, writers. Take notes, boys. This is how you get the ladies. <laughs> Just tell them they're freaking stupid and then maybe they'll date you. Because that means that they must like you. If they insult you, it's just like hitting them on the playground. 
Just like kindergarten, guys. Girls are so stupid and simple. They don't even know what they want. Am I right, boys? That's that's what I that's what I see going on in Riley's head. I I don't think that's what's happening here. I think that the writers are just trying to make Riley be like the tough love type of person. I also think that this is just handled so poorly. This is just ugh, I hate this. Okay. So Riley says, I'm serious. You've got this twisted way of looking at things. Basically, like your mentality is wrong. Just like buckle up, have a better attitude, and then things will go right. The problem with this is the last time Buffy gave a relationship a go and just decided to seize the moment, move forward, it was with Parker. Understandably, she's hesitant. I mean, not even counting the angel thing. The stupid part is Riley knows that's what happened with Parker. Like, I feel like that should be a topic of conversation. Um, Then Buffy says, you know, there's nothing more dangerous than a psych grad student. She tries to keep moving. Riley says, Buffy, where's the bad here? Turns out we're even more well-matched than we thought we were. I mean, you're a – and then the whole fry cook thing, which is admittedly very funny. And then Buffy says, you're an amateur fry cook. (laughs) And I come from a long line of fry cooks who don't live past 25. And that should have caused Riley to pause and say, yeah, wow, that's really heavy. That means you've only got maybe four years of living left or something like that. Instead, he says, well, that kind of attitude is the one that's going to get you killed. I also know that this job is more rewarding than any other job on the planet. So basically, sit down and have so much fun because you're going to die in four years. I honestly think that like it, the only thing that would have made this conversation worse is if he was like, maybe it's maybe are you on your period? Like, are you on your period? <laughs> right. That's how it reads to me. It's just very like, like I yeah. know more than you, even though like. She's way more experienced. He's practically mansplaining her, like to her, what a slayer <laughs> should true. be like. Yeah, that is very true. Yes, and it's frustrating because I feel like so often the writers want to challenge Buffy, and they often do a really good job. Like I don't think Riley is one hundred percent wrong in this in this moment, and I don't think Buffy is one hundred percent wrong. So there's like there's things to be said on both sides, and I appreciate that. But the writers in trying to challenge Buffy more often than not trample completely over her emotions and her feelings, and it just looks really bad, especially for a character that you're trying to get the audience to love. This was not the way, people. This was not the way. And Buffy compares his fun mentality to faith. Riley's saying, I'm not saying you shouldn't take your work seriously. Buffy's like, I wish I could be happier, but this is the kind of gig where you hang it up at the end of the day and snuggle with your honey. Riley says, but why? Why can't it be? Okay, at least he's asking questions, even though I don't really feel like he's mm-hmm. asking a question. And then Buffy says, I've tried it. Okay, so here's the thing. Here's where I think Buffy could do better. Buffy needs to actually like spell it out for him. She's she's just saying, I've tried it okay every time things fall apart. Basically, she's saying, you just have to trust me. With Riley, he needs it to be explained to him. Is that Buffy's job? Eh, if she wants this to work, she's going to have to be open with him and kind of explain why. She doesn't have to if she doesn't want to be, but she also has to, she also has to recognize that if she wants a relationship with this guy, there's going to be a lot of educational work that's going to have to happen But she doesn't. That's the thing. She doesn't want a relationship with him, and that's what she's trying to spell out. So I don't really feel like that's her responsibility. 
Well, I don't – I think she does want a relationship with him. And I think that's why Riley keeps pushing because he knows she does. She wants a relationship with him. She's just scared. And that's where like the validity is – that's where the valid part of Riley's conversation comes into play. Um, and then Riley says, welcome to the story of the world. Things fall apart, Buffy. Evil, it comes and goes. But the way people manage it is they don't do it alone. Yes, fair. They pull – each other through. And sometimes they even enjoy themselves. If you weren't so self-involved, you'd see that. Big no. Big no, no. And again, this is the this is the show trying to say that Buffy is self-involved. And they often do this through Xander, through Willow, through like big conversations like Deadman's Party. The stupid part is I don't think Buffy's being self-centered or self-involved at all. Mm-hmm. It's just like why – I if a man if a man let's just stop if a man there, actually <laughs> that's it no if a man has the gall to call me stupid and self-involved in the same conversation when we haven't even started officially dating we've got a one date red flag like for real like I understand like we understand Riley a little bit more than like Buffy does because we've seen him in his GI Joe era um but it's like I if a man said that to me when we went on one day, I'd be like, hello? Like, you don't know me. And that's what Buffy says. She's a lot more gracious than I would be, to be honest. Yeah. And Riley is speaking out of ignorance because he is so fresh and new to this world. And I think that's partially the point. I think Riley is supposed to be speaking out of ignorance. He's supposed to be because he's human. And this is just glaringly obvious. This is making it glaringly obvious but that they Riley – more like palatable like they could have made it a little bit easier to swallow for us totally yeah um and i think this is another hint another like very big hint that riley is just a complete noob that he is just a he's very naive to this world um but yeah anyway so buffy's had enough she starts to go riley says i know that it's not just a job thing i'm sure there's some good looking guy that's done you wrong in there too but mostly i think you want to stay down in the dark place because maybe it's safer down there which again this is the writers peeking through they're saying this because you have the hell mouth where he's gonna like he's gonna say you're gonna come back like it's that whole metaphor of like pulling her out of the hell mouth and all that stuff but yeah anyway okay so then at the museum they cannot find the word of Valios, not even the syllable of Valios. Spike figures out that he can emotionally and verbally hurt Xander and Willow and that it is nearly as satisfying as actually wailing on someone. And I think that's a really, really important thing to keep in mind that not only does Spike realize that he can actually hurt demons, but he realizes he can harm the gang with just his words. Um, that's also really, really important because it shows that his operant conditioning, there, there's a flaw in the operant conditioning in the chip that they've given him. So he tells them that basically they are useless for Buffy. She does everything. They're the losers that are still stuck in high school, kind of just hitting straight at the nerve. So then Giles, poor Giles. I feel like he had nothing to do this episode. I feel like all he did was just research. He said no plot this episode. Yeah. I know. It was kind of a bummer. Why didn't he go with them? And then the dubbed library? over. This is not his episode <laughs> to shine. That is true. Such a bummer. So Giles realizes that he actually owns the word of values of all things because, of course, the word of values. all over the freaking place, dude. <laughs> like, don't even get me started on the last 10 minutes of this episode when we're in. Yeah, we're, the here actual- we go. <laughs> here can't. we go. 
Yep. So he figures out the word of values. Oh my gosh. And then all of a sudden the three guys happen to be there. Okay. This is actually genuinely disturbing. They attack him. It pans out. We hear Giles just being wailed on. And then when we cut to his apartment, poor man is like all beat up. Oh, that's oh, why know. he didn't go to the library. All the that veins too and everything. The poor man. Yeah. So then Giles is like, the word of Valios was the name of a talisman. They took it. They probably had their sacrifices by now. And then Buffy's like, where were they going? Do you know where the where they are, what the ritual is for? And Giles is like, the Hellmouth. It opens the Hellmouth, the one in the library. Buffy says, looks like we're going back to high school. Which, okay, this is really kind of cool. We're going back to the high school. So we go in. They see like the condemned sign, which I'm like super surprised that they haven't like tore it down. They bring Spike for some reason. Don't even know why. <laughs> He's still suicidal. He's like, fine by me. I hope we all go under. <laughs> <laughs> and then Buffy's like, why is he here? It's not like he can fight. <laughs> I was just going to say like the set for the high school is actually pretty sick. Like, I don't know how they built this up. It didn't look like it was fabricated at all. I was like, oh, okay, good job, guys. Did you guys notice Amy's mom's statue on the floor? Mm-hmm. I was like, yes. This is so cool. So they actually wrote that into the script. They, um, Willow was supposed to actually step on Amy's mom or nearly step on Amy's mom. And then it says, still entombed, her eyes dart desperately as Willow's foot comes crashing down on her. After Willow moves on, Amy's mom glares at her despite her impotence, which is kind of cool. <laughs> I'm just getting vibes of Kung Fu Panda from when he like shudders like the, the jar with all the souls in it and then he keeps hitting it and like, Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she like steps to the mom. The mom's like, ow. Like, that would be so funny. <laughs> that would be pretty funny. <laughs> so they enter the library and they're like, check out the new floor plan. It's completely burnt to a crisp. They find like, oh, there's like snake bits all over. Like Xander like steps on a bit of like mare meat. It's kind of cool. All this like little like throwbacks. So Buffy's like, keep your eye out for the sacrifice. And then she starts to wail in on the demons. Spike's just kind of sitting there. He can't do anything. He's completely useless. He's literally just sitting there and staring. So funny. But also, like, again, the fight scene was so sick. I was like, I want more. I want more of her just, like, wailing on them and then wailing on her. So Willow's like, Spike, help. And it says a disinterested Spike catches the bag more out of instinct than anything else. Sees demon number two, now more furious than ever, charges towards him. So through the midst of the battle, Spike gets sick and tired of getting wailed on. And then he starts to fight back. He hits the guy and then realizes, I don't have any pain. I can hurt a demon, says with this new awareness, Spike goes to town on the demon, unleashing a dizzying torrent of pent up violence on the unlucky fellow and going vamp face in the process. His display is truly impressive, kicking and hitting until the demon is crumpled in a dying heap on the ground. Yeah, that's right. I'm back and I'm a bloody animal. Yeah. Which I really like that because that's him owning the derogatory term that Forrest used to describe the demons at the beginning of the episode. And this is Spike kind of getting an aspect of his identity back. Um, and so I thought that was kind of a, an interesting mirror. I love how in the season of like everyone struggling with their identity, Spike is just like warped into that by default. Yeah. He's really <laughs> yeah. just like struggling with like himself this whole season. He just has violence issues. He's like, I literally don't <laughs> care who I am as long as I can hit something. <laughs> Or hurt someone, whether it's like hitting them or not. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so in the midst of all this, Xander notices that one of the demons that was fighting him jumps into the pit. He's like, I guess I won. Spike in his like absolute glee that he can kill things now throws the second demon over into the pit. And everyone's like, no, Spike. And he's like, what? I was helping. <laughs> and then Buffy's fighting demon number three. The building starts to come down. Buffy yells for everyone to get out of there. They like pull Spike out of the library. She's struggling with demon number three. And then Riley comes in and they start fighting. And Buffy says, don't let him jump into the hellmouth. And did you guys notice that they actually worked a lot better as a team than they did in Hush? Like we noted in Hush that they seem to kind of almost be working like against each other at times, like they couldn't quite coordinate and get along with what they were trying to do. And so I think they worked a lot better in this. In They're this like, just episode. kidding you guys. Um, they actually are a perfect match. So <laughs> let's just completely yes. change it in this episode. <laughs> All we needed was Riley to completely insult Buffy for her to have that epiphany that she's being self-centered mm-hmm. and she doesn't actually know what she's doing. That would doing. do it for me, to be honest. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Come on, man. <laughs> Buffy just has a degrading kink. <laughs> <laughs> That's awful. <laughs> so the okay, then this part, this part was just stupid. So like they like pummel the demon. No, he's like, don't even badly get me started. Injured. He's falling for a solid ten seconds, <laughs> and he's like crawling <laughs> slow motion. It's like actually comical. No, he is, and they're just watching him crawl to the pit. I was like, dude, go do something. Oh my gosh. And I literally wrote in my notes, okay, but how long did Buffy stand there and watch him do this? Like, come on. So then Buffy's like, all right, I'm going in. And then the sound editing in this it's just it was weird, like the way that her voice sounded. (sighs) Riley says, You're coming back or something. (sighs) Riley says, You're coming back out. Okay. Obviously, she's not gonna just jump in without a plan. Like, my goodness. (sighs) Like, okay, like, at this this point, the demon... The demon should have already been at the bottom. And the fact that she jumps in after him catches up immediately. And you're (laughs) you're telling me... No, no, no. You're telling me that Granola Riley is pulling both of their body weights up with, like, little to no effort. And then she just pulls them... Like, are you... Guys, I love Buffy so much, but this whole scene, I was just like, you no, this none is of the this stupidest works. scene. None yeah. of this works. No, okay. The rope that he pulls her up is the size of dental floss. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised he didn't cut his hand in half. Also, somehow they Buffy- just needed him to be the hero. That's all it is. I don't think he was the hero. I think it was the idea that like they, he was helping her. They were working together. He's the one that pulled her back up. But, you know, he's not going to let her fall to the bottom. Pulling Buffy, her out of hell. Yeah. Somehow Buffy beats this guy to the ground. And no, not only does she beat him to the ground, she knocks him out a death blow. And then when they get back up, he dies when they get – like, how did she knock him out? Like, did he hit the ground and then she grabbed him and took him back out? Like, who I knows? thought the exact same thing, Sarah. I was like, how is this dude dying? I don't – like, he literally just jumped in and she grabbed him. Like, what – Stupid. Did he scrape Absolutely the bottom? Stupid. Did he pull, like, a Gwen from Yeah, I was going to say, was it a Spider-Man and Gwen <laughs> Stacy? <laughs> Sarah and I are on the same wavelength tonight. No. <laughs> pull a Gwen and then like just, you know, passed away. We see we see Riley's like thing, like the web, the hand coming down. Oh, no. See, that's down. like a little too far, Sarah. That part is- Stop. This is traumatizing. <laughs> My bad. Sorry. Okay. We can make jokes about her like dying, but then not not the, the web with the hand. <laughs> oh, my too gosh. Far. Too far. Too far. <laughs> Uh, 
Okay. And so here's the thing. Pasha the Nerd brought a really good point where he was talking about how like so far the relationship isn't looking that much different from her relationship with Angel with like, you know, how they're hitting kind of the same beats with them both having secret identities. Obviously, I agree. Angel's superior. Don't give me weird eyes, Tabby. You know what I mean. But what I mean is – I'm just saying his opinion. No, no. I think they are hitting a lot of the same beats. And I think that they're not letting Riley be his own character. They're trying Mm. so hard to kind of have him be like this caricature of Angel because they're like, that formula worked. And I think it comes down to they don't – they didn't know what they were doing with Riley. And so they're just kind of falling into a formula and past patterns that they know. And it's just not interesting because Angel did it better and we've already seen it, you know? Yep. So then they walk out and everyone's just standing there. Okay, in what world are Willow and Xander going to be like, yeah, Buffy, we're going to let you die for us again. Like, we'll see you. Hope you make it out. Like, we'll leave Riley in there because surely Riley knows what he's doing better. No, no, like, this it just- makes sense, guys. Like, not, like, no, none it doesn't. of this makes sense. No, it was clearly a plot device to get Riley and Buffy in there to have their moment together. But that should have been Xander and Willow in there trying to pull mm-hmm. up with that rope. And it would have been just as impactful because it would have shown how Riley was one of the gang, you know? So anyway. So they get out and Riley's like, hey, Willow, Xander, haha, I was just, you know, um, passing by in my G.I. Joe outfit. I'm doing I'm a friend of Xander's here. (laughs) (laughs) You would think he'd be better at lying, bro. The funny thing was James Marsters was originally going to play Spike with a Texas accent. So I think that's- Oh, thank goodness he did not. I just keep hearing Tector. Like, imagine, like, Spike with a Tector accent. (laughs) Oh, I'll have to say that again because now we got Leah's sneeze. <laughs> okay, to be fair, I was muted, but I can't help it. It's Tabby wasn't muted. No one's blaming you, Leah. It's okay. It just <laughs> was, was unfortunate. <laughs> okay, but I love Tector. He's like, how come he's going to make me blush? <laughs> What's his brother's name? Lyle. Lyle and Tector. Nectar. Nectar and Tector. <laughs> So there was a moment that was cut out of the scene right here as they're leaving. The script says, "Who Xander and Willow, who both look as though they feel strangely liberated. Xander says, good world saving back their will. The keep away thing was key. Will takes this in gratified. You too, if you hadn't figured out that demons are the sacrifice thing, we'd all be hell babies by now. Now they boast somewhat mockingly. Xander, what can I say? We kicked the apocalypse's ass, Willow said again. A beat. Then Xander says, Weird being back, wasn't it? Willow says, yeah, everything looks so much smaller and more charred and ruiny. And I kind of wish they kept that scene in because I love that at the end of the day, Willow and Xander are encouraging each other and building each other up and being supportive when both of them just feel very insecure with where they're at right now. Um, And I know we got glimpses of that in the episode, but I just, I really liked that moment. So the next day we're in Riley's room. Buffy comes in. She's like, hey. That's what his poster says. (laughs) I saw that too. I was like, oh, come on, man. Okay, so Mark Lucas actually has made fun of that poster because he was talking about how he was a professional basketball. Why can't it be like baseball or basketball? It's just balls. (laughs) The patriarchy. (laughs) I bet you Forrest gave him that poster. (laughs) He's like, Riley, balls. Right, right? <laughs> He's like, manly things, right, Riley? <laughs> I just want your approval so badly, Riley. 
No, okay, but Mark Lucas has said that because he was a professional basketball player and they hadn't really fully fleshed out Riley's backstory or anything. I mean, Jane Espenson had to make up where he was from on the spot. They just were like, Oh, yeah, okay. Poor you Mark like basketball. Lucas is like, what do I work with, guys? Like, please help my character out here. I know. They literally like gave him nothing. Like it was giving nothing. And so they were like, oh, you like basketball? Cool. So they like made his entire identity about basketball. And Mark Lucas cracks up because he was like not about that- basketball balls. So Buffy comes in and she's like, Oh, um, hey, you never called. I didn't know if you – and the script says, Riley anxiously cuts her off. It's clear that he's worked himself into a terrible state of agitation. So Riley is very worried that everyone knows that his secret identity is that he's the initiative. And so he says, everybody knows about me. I'm finished. It's the end of the world. And this is so interesting because Riley is equating his cover being blown to the end of the mm-hmm. world highlights the disparity between his world and Buffy's. The end of her world means death for everyone if she doesn't do totally. her job. Riley can't say the same. Well, his identity is basically his, you know, so the fact that that's like blending into his like, I guess, normal-ish persona it's like it's shaking his core he's like oh my word like what am i supposed to do he's he's also a rules guy so the fact that like his covers being blown he's like probably thinking of all the consequences and his ranking and he's thinking about all the rep- like repercussions that are gonna happen because of it whereas buffy's like okay like <laughs> it's not that big of a deal yeah happens to me every day dude yeah like, no big deal i don't fault riley for this because he Again, he's new to this whole thing. He's very naive about this world that he's involved in, but I worry about his and Buffy's relationship if he's not aware of what he's going to be going through. Um, But this is a Whedon show, so I'm sure the poor guy will go through it in due time. He will not always be this young and naive. So Buffy says, no, it's not the end of the world, and then she kisses him. So I guess they're a thing now. There, w- there needed to be a conversation here. There needed to be communication. There needed to be something. We can't just kiss and be like, okay. Why have fine communication now. when you can have kiss? Yeah. I, I, you said so eloquently, Leah. So Thank eloquent. <laughs> <laughs> Why have conversation when you can have kiss? <laughs> Oh, oh my god, I was not expecting that. <laughs> so then Willow and Xander just try to watch some TV. Spike's like, hey, well, you notice, first of all, his clothing. He's wearing his black shirt again and he's wearing it with jeans. So it isn't fully back to himself, but it's a representation of how he's like halfway there. I wish he um, wore more jeans. I was like, oh, those jeans look nice on him. Yeah, it looks a lot better. Also, because he like, has legitimately the same outfit every episode so i'm like craving for something different yeah seriously so spike's like what's this just sitting about watching the telly when there's evil afoot not very industrious of you i say we get out there and kick a little demon ass and they just like sit there and like crane their necks to like see around him on the television he's like can't go without your buffy is that it two chicken let's find her then she is the chosen one after all and i'm like dude like let's work off this energy. Like have him go patrol with Bobby. She needs some backup, some help. Let's go. <laughs> I love how he's like, "Come on, vampires, grr, nasty. Let's annihilate them for justice and for the safety of puppies and Christmas, right? Let's fight that evil. Let's kill something." But then it blacks out, and he's like, "Oh, come on!" 
Ugh, so funny. That episode is so weird because I think the B plot is better than the A plot and I'm just like yeah. not used to it. This is like one of those episodes where it's like people are always like, oh yeah, I saw one episode of Buffy once and it's always the weirdest episode. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, this is like the episode that people would watch where they're like, I have no idea what's going on. They're like, man, this Buffy and Riley like people are so irritating. <laughs> Our old roommate, she was like, like open to the idea of Buffy, and I'm not gonna say which episode. I'm just gonna say one word, and you guys will know exactly which episode she walks in on. Oh, no. And and then she after that made fun of Buffy so much, and I was like, oh, of course, <laughs> this is the oh. episode you walk in on. Um, the part where a character says, "Well, okay, it's not the sad one, but the character where someone says, Mommy. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> not the oh, sad one no. where someone says, "Mommy," but the other one, and. And she, of she just never – and I was like, I – of course. Like, of course. Yeah. No. This episode. Embarrassing. Really embarrassing. All right. So um, this is the part of the episode where I'm going to say log off if you have not seen the rest of the show because I have a little bit of a spoiler to give and I – don't want to wait till the end of the season to talk about it. So if you've not seen the rest of the show, thanks so much for listening. We will see you next time. For the rest of you, just stick around. Now that the right. losers are gone, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, the party wah, can really start. <laughs> you just know someone stuck around. It's like, what? What are they going to say? Okay, so I'm just going to say this real fast. Um, I read this review, Shangle's review, and they said something really interesting right here. And they were talking about this last scene with Buffy and Riley, and I thought this was so interesting. They said, however, I've always felt that Buffy made a compromise with herself in this episode. She never truly opens herself up to Riley and leaves herself vulnerable. She holds him at arm's length. It's like she decided that she's willing to try a relationship with Riley, but she won't run the risk of getting hurt again to the extent that she did with Angel. The same thing happens with Spike in seasons six and seven. Buffy never truly opens her heart to someone after her relationship with Angel falls apart. This is one of the primary reasons why Riley leaves her in the next season. And I thought that was such a good point. I mean, obviously season five, Riley has a lot of issues and I'm not going to say that like it was Buffy's fault for Riley leaving, but I think like it's so telling the two episodes that kickstart Buffy and Riley's relationship is Hush, where they have communication issues and then Doomed, which is basically describing their relationship. Riley and Buffy from the get-go cannot communicate. And I think that Buffy... I really think she does compromise and decides, okay, I'm just going to like try this thing with Riley, mm. but we never really see her latch onto him like she does with Angel. And I just thought that was I just, crazy. I am such a huge, huge believer in the fact that like whatever, whatever emotion you feel in the beginning of a relationship usually dictates how you're going to feel the rest of the relationship. And that's just a gut instinct. Like if you have a gut instinct when you first are dating somebody and you're like kind of apprehensive about it, not in like a, like a, um, a, I really like this person. Um, I just don't know where I'm going to be next year. That's a little bit different rather than like a, I just don't know if I like them. That's a little bit different. 
And I feel like her gut instinct of being like, we view things very differently. And a part of me doesn't really, it's not really worth it to me. That's the vibes I'm getting from her. It's not worth it. The relationship's not worth it. If this, this were mm. Angel, she would put herself in that situation tenfold because she was obsessed with Angel. Um, it just screams to me that like she doesn't like Riley enough. Um, but like I just like everything that ends up breaking them up later on. Buffy is like experiencing and feeling in this right episode. now. Yeah. yeah. No, 100%. And she's pushing him away here and he's mm-hmm. like, no, no, let me in, let me in, which is why like I'm a huge proponent of I think Riley and Buffy are great people. I think Riley like grows yeah. and I think he makes his mistakes, but I don't think they're good together. And I don't think – I think Buffy deserves better and I think Riley deserves better. I don't think they're good for they each other. They don't bring out the best in each other. Like obviously the relationship really deteriorated like Riley's self-esteem and he like did things that he shouldn't have. And I think he would agree with that. But it's like, you know, relationships are supposed to bring out the best in each other and clearly they weren't the healthiest pairing. Yeah, totally agree. So, yeah, that's my little spoiler for this um, season. Going to have to wait for the rest until we get to the end of season four. All right, guys, let us know what you think of this episode. Do you like it? Do you think it's kind of a meh, meh? Uh, What did you think of Riley and Buffy's interactions in this episode? Do you think that Buffy's in the right? Do you think Riley's in the right? Do you think they both have a point? I'm really curious to know, especially now that we're kind of getting into a little bit more of their relationship. I'm curious to know what you guys think about that. So Yeah, let us know if it's a meh-meh or a (laughs) (laughs) win-win. Ignore her, soulless creature. (laughs) Thank you for that. Thank you for that just, you know, so insightful, <laughs> so deep. Such a contribution to the podcast, Leah. <laughs> <laughs> like Leah unmutes that her laugh goes through the podcast and then mutes again just to show everyone that she's laughing at someone's joke or her own joke. Solidarity. <laughs> when there's tons of silence, it's just them laughing. <laughs> or staring at me That's blankly. That's accurate. Yep. That's why I unmute so that people know that we're laughing and it's not just silence. I appreciate that. (laughs) You're welcome. All right, guys, have a great next couple of weeks and we will talk to you next time. Bye.